thinking all day, every day, is this it? Is this it? Could this be the day? I redecorated my bedroom waiting for one of my kids. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Carmen, and I'm a certified breastfeeding counselor. And I'm Ruth Green, an international birth doula. And this is the Having a Baby in China podcast. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. The views expressed here are the personal opinions of individuals and do not necessarily reflect any official stance or recommendation by having a baby in China. Hey, Ruth, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. Here we are again, recording. Oh, it's always fun to record with you because we, before we start the recording, we kind of catch up on each other's lives and yeah, I don't know. It's just fun to talk, mm-hmm. but I actually haven't told you this story of what happened today. So I'm sitting downstairs. We have a two-story apartment and I'm sitting downstairs working on stuff for the podcast and my two youngest, so my youngest is three and the second youngest is six and they're upstairs playing and I hear them kind of roughhousing. We have a big open area. And I don't know if I even registered that they were sword fighting, but we have a bunch of plastic swords. And so anyways, I all of a sudden just hear, you know, crying. And there's so many memes and jokes about like first child versus fourth child, but it's all true. Like by the time you get to that fourth child, you listen to the tone of the scream and then you kind of wait to see. (laughs) And I was working and I was just like, if he's really hurt, you know. I'll know. And so he starts coming downstairs and I'm like, oh, what happened? Oh, I should say, I hear the screaming. And then the three, I hear the three-year-old say, I sorry, I sorry, I sorry, I sorry. Uh, (laughs) So anyways, the six-year-old's coming downstairs and he's crying and he comes over and I give him a hug and he's like, Joshua hit me on top of the head with a sword. So I talk to Joshua about, you know, being more careful, not hitting him on the head. And I offer the six-year-old Jonathan a bag of ice and he's like, no, I don't need ice. And then I'm like, well, do you want to take a rest or go keep playing? And so he's like, I'm going to go keep playing. So they run back upstairs and keep playing. And about a half an hour later, it's time for bed. And so we get them all ready for bed. And my husband's carrying the six-year-old upstairs and I pat his head and I'm like, what's that? And he has a bloody head. Oh, man. <laughs> And I just felt like the worst parent who was like, I'm too busy working. Here, I'll give you a hug. You want some ice? I'm like, no, good. Okay, see you later. And here he's like bleeding from his head and none of us even know it. So anyways, uh, he's fine. I washed him up and gave him some antibiotic ointment and all of that. But anyways, <laughs> there's my bad parenting moment for the night. Oh, we all have some of those. I could tell you about how my son this morning, as we're getting in the elevator to go get on the school bus, he kind of is like clutching his stomach and he's like, <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't know that I should go to school today. I'm like, we're in the elevator. We're going to the bus. Like the bus is there. <laughs> I'm like, this is not the time to tell me this. I'm not great at like quick decisions so I'm like no we're you're going to school (laughs) so (laughs) granted so the week before he had uh, some tummy issues but you know so I was like okay fine just rest and then my husband took him into school like a little 
couple hours later and he was fine. He made it through the day. But anyways, I get a phone call probably like 40 minutes into the school day, maybe not even, I don't know. <laughs> like, I know what this phone call is. Oh, no. Like, oh, your son, you know, has vomited so much. So he was just like, he vomited so much. Oh, the no. school nurse was like, oh, yeah, I'll come and get him. <laughs> oh, I'm Poor sorry. Kid. We had the stomach bug last week. It was not fun. No. But he's fine. Fine. Even, yeah. So do you, like, do you expect that it'll go through your family now one by one? Because I feel like that's what always happens. I don't know. I mean, he he had some, you know, some stomach issues last week. And then, like, this was similar, but it was just, like, one vomit. But I don't know. I think maybe it's just, like, some residual. I, I don't know. Like, you, your stomach yeah. is still not settled. And so, like more sensitive so he was really careful with just eating like bland like toast and Mm -hmm. I don't know well here's how you know that you're a mom and this is gross but (laughs) this is for real what happened so we had the stomach bug last week and it went through kind of the kids one by one and then by the time the third one got it I was feeling queasy and so you know like I help him out and then I go and I'm like I'm gonna throw up and I was like, I don't want to throw up into a dirty toilet. And so, no, so I, I cleaned the no. toilet. Yes. <laughs> I definitely. Totally. Sp- Every time. <laughs> People think I'm so weird when I tell them this, but I'm like, I didn't want to have it my face in that weird. dirty toilet. <laughs> no, you're going to pick up more diseases. <laughs> well, this is disgusting and we should probably. Yeah. <laughs> Probably move on to where what we yes. were actually. So you talk had a about. topic you wanted to actually talk about today, and <laughs> what would what would you like us to discuss? <laughs> oh, I wanted to talk about waiting for labor and just kind of the mm-hmm. mental game that goes into that. Yes, that's a tough one. Yeah, you're so excited. You're like, I want to meet this baby, but also a little bit of fear of like, what is this gonna look like? And mm-hmm. I mean, for me, honestly, like whenever I got pregnant, it's so ridiculous. Like almost as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I was like, oh, when is the baby gonna come? Like, <laughs> how is it gonna happen? <laughs> like, <laughs> I actually felt really guilty with my first two babies because I actually felt fine. Like physically, I felt completely fine. I had perfectly healthy pregnancies. I think even my first three that I felt this way, kind of guilty because I had these perfectly healthy pregnancies. There was nothing wrong with me. I wasn't even that uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. especially the first two. Like I was in my 20s and healthy and they weren't, I don't know. I just didn't have any extra discomforts. And yet I got down to that last week and I cried every single morning that I did not go into labor. (laughs) I actually think that there's something hormonal that goes into that too. Like it was a different kind of crying. Yeah. It was like I would wake up and I would just start this crying that I couldn't stop. It was very strange. And then with both of those first two, I remember very clearly crying for four or five days in a row. And then one day waking up and being like, you know, I don't need to cry. I'm going to have this baby one of these days. And what do you know? I went into labor that night, like both times. Yeah, you just had to make peace with it's it's going to happen when it's going to happen and yeah, I really don't know how much of it is psychological or mental and how much of it is like physiological and hormonal because 
I can't really describe the the feeling that I had about the crying. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just so sad that I haven't had the baby, so I'm crying. It was like my body needed to cry, and I don't really understand that, although mm-hmm. I know that the hormones are all over the place. But anyways, on that same topic, there's a lot that goes into the mental game. And the thing that you asked me a couple of weeks ago, like, what am I passionate about? Like, what are what are my topics that I'm interested in or that I enjoy talking about or that I get fired up about. And one of them is that it really frustrates me how as a society, we have shifted our perception of what is normal to be what is not normal. Okay. So Mm -hmm. if we look at people who go into spontaneous labor, so that means that they're not Mm -hmm. being induced for any reason. They're not having an uh, elective cesarean or a planned cesarean of any type. So we're just looking at people who, you know, go into labor the old-fashioned way, whether it be their water breaks or they start having contractions or whatever. Only 50% of those people actually have the baby before 40 weeks and five days. So that's almost 41 weeks, not 40 weeks. Mm -hmm. And actually, I wasn't able to find the numbers on this when I was looking it up for this podcast specifically, but that actually even shifts per like ethnicity. So Caucasians on average go even longer. All right. Hmm. So we have this in our mind and there's a whole history of that. I don't need to go into tonight of like how we established what a due date is. And it goes back to way before we had ultrasounds or anything. And the only way Mm -hmm. that we could predict when a baby would be born was based off of her first missed period. Okay. So the first day of Mm her last period, really, actually. And mm-hmm. of course, everybody knows we all have different cycles. Some people's cycles are 25 days. Some people's cycles are 30 days. And, and there's this whole range of normal. And so with that, there's a whole range of normal of when a baby or when a baby is conceived, right? And therefore, like when mm-hmm. a baby yeah. is born. And so when we developed technology and all of that, and we have sonograms that we can actually look at, when is the baby actually conceived? When does ovulation occur mm-hmm. and fertilization occur and all of that, and then map it out, we actually find that babies are not born until actually past 40 weeks on average, okay? So again, that's like 40 mm-hmm. weeks plus five days. And yet we still have it in our mind that there's this magic <laughs> magic day that we go and like circle on our calendar and we tell everybody what it is. And even, I mean, there's a movement to kind of like have a due month instead of a due date, right? So to be like, well, I'm due somewhere at the end of May or whatever, rather than I'm due this date. And I think that's a really good idea, especially with like friends and family, or I've had friends that have actually told people that their due date is two weeks later than what it actually is, just so people aren't bugging <laughs> yeah. them because there's a lot of societal pressure that goes into it and yeah. and good pressure. Oh, like you're not- still pregnant. Oh, what are you, <laughs> yes. you're still here? Yes. <laughs> my sister actually did that with her. Like I remember, so my, I, I'm the youngest of seven and all my siblings are, um, my oldest sister's 21 years older than me. So like my two older sisters could be like my mom. Mm-hmm. But so I remember them getting pregnant and giving birth. And, you know, so anyways, I, I just remember her talking about that. Like, oh, yeah, it's just I, I'm due in May. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I'm due. I definitely did something similar. I was like, oh, the middle of March or <laughs> the end of September. I think that's really wise. I think that's really good. But I think that there's still going to be, especially in China where everything is so medicalized, right? 
Definitely. Yeah. It's going to be in your brain and it's going to be in your charts and it's going to be in your doctor's brains about what the due date is, right? And even with me thinking like that, still, mm -hmm. every time you yes. go into the office, the doctor is, you know, you go get an ultrasound and it says you're like this many weeks. And then the doctor is also getting pre like feeling pressure to like, you're 40 weeks and <laughs> you're supposed to have the baby. <laughs> yes. I also want to add, so it was 50% by 40 weeks plus five days. And then it's 75%. Mm -hmm. So an, an additional 25% that give birth by 41 weeks plus two days. So there's like that 25% mm -hmm. actually can go well past 41 weeks. And so yeah. this idea that, you know, we're supposed to have the baby between 39 and 40 weeks, or if we go past 40 weeks, now we are overdue. I'm not mm -hmm. one who really gets hung up on words because I feel like it always changes. So, you know, it used to be like overdue and then it's post due. And I don't know, they come up with all these different words. They all mean the same mm -hmm. thing. We all know what it means. Yeah. But yeah, like this idea that overdue, it's like overcooked, right? If you have the dinner in the oven, it's yeah. overcooked if you go past the timer. And so I don't really have a great solution to this because it's going to be pounded into our head, just like you said, at every doctor's appointment, every sonogram and everything. But I do think it's really important to look at or to fixate in your mind that actually what is physiologically normal is to be actually 40 plus five days. So even if your due date, so to speak, is on a certain day mm -hmm. that on average, you're unlikely to give birth by that point. And there's another thing that I want to talk about. And that is, actually, there's two things that kind of go into that. And so you will find, especially in China, but really many countries around the world, that doctors are strongly recommending induction by 41 weeks. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my clients will come to me and say, what happens at 41 weeks? Do I cross that date and suddenly everything's super dangerous? And what I want to say is, no, you don't. It's not a magical day that suddenly, you know, you went from being low risk to suddenly you're super high risk. Whenever we look at statistics, whenever we look at these numbers in birth, we have to remember that whatever statistic that's being given is based off of a very, very large number, okay? So generally when we talk about, for instance, adverse fetal outcomes, so things that are not good for the baby, so whether it be stillbirth mm -hmm. or yeah. um, problems with breathing or whatever it might be, we're looking at per 10,000 babies, okay? Yeah. So that's a really, really large number. It's not like it's one out of 100 or one out of 10 or something like that. We're looking at per 10,000. And so when we look at babies that are born at 40 weeks versus babies that are born at 41 weeks, there's a couple extra adverse outcomes per 10,000. So if the number was mm -hmm. 10 per 10,000 or 12 per 10,000, now it might be 14 per 10,000, right? Or 17 per 10,000, right? So if we're looking at the difference between 10 and 17, that looks like a really big number. And that's what we call relative risk. We're looking at 10 babies versus 17 babies. And we say, oh, that's yeah. a much higher risk, a much higher relative risk. But if we look at yeah. 10 out of 10,000 versus 17 out of 10,000, that's what's called absolute risk. And so that your actual risk only goes up by a very, very small amount. I've heard definitely like when they, they like to use these numbers to, you know, and they'll say like your risk doubles. And yes. what it is, is like it went from two to four. Yes. I mean, that's doubling. It is. It is doubling. It's still. 
And this actually happened to me. Uh, I found out after the birth of my second baby that I have a, a very, very small hole in my heart. And so I went to one doctor who was the neurologist. I went to him for symptoms that were connected to the hole in the heart. And he's the one who found the hole in the mm. heart. But he was a neurologist, right? Mm -hmm. And so he said yeah. to me, you're twice as likely to have a stroke in pregnancy. Well, that sounded really scary. And so we were just like, okay, no more babies. Yeah. We're not having any more babies. But then when we went back to the hospital a year later for follow-up and just kind of just to see if anything had progressed during the year, then that time we met with the cardiologist and I asked him the same question, like, mm -hmm. can we have more children? And he said, oh, yeah, of course. He said twice as likely means, and it was literally those numbers. It was now you're yeah. four out of 40,000 instead of two out of 40,000 or whatever the numbers were. And I was like, oh, that makes more sense. But as a doctor, they are looking at these huge numbers, especially because yeah. even if you just take one doctor in China, and we've talked about on this podcast before that things are done very assembly line and a doctor sees mm -hmm. a very high number of patients. So they're going to see yeah. patient after patient after patient after patient. I've heard numbers anywhere from like 50 in one day to maybe more than mm -hmm. that. Like it's a lot. And so now if they're seeing, let's even just say 25 patients a day, five days a week, that's 125 patients. So over a month, they're going to see, you know, 600. Am I doing my math right? I think that's 600 patients. And then over two months, that's now 1,200 patients. All right. So they're seeing a huge number of patients. The likelihood that they're mm -hmm. going to run into one of these adverse outcomes is actually really high. And I think once you do, it's really scary. So to a doctor, they're looking at these really big numbers and saying, well, if we just treat everybody in the same way, maybe statistically we can lower some of the risks. But for an individual, the amount of risk is very, very small. The amount of increased risk, I should say, is very small. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Do you have anything you want to add there? No, except for your math was wrong. It was 500. <laughs> if it's 125. <laughs> but... Okay, I think my math was wrong, so <laughs> we can... But it's okay. Okay. We get the point. Right. <laughs> you weren't getting... Okay, so the point is that, yes, they see a lot of people over a period of time, and so the, the chances that they're going to run into these adverse outcomes are actually very high. And then a secondary influence in this is that in 2018, there was a study published called the ARRIVE trial, mm -hmm. and... I really don't want to go into all of the different details. There is a really fantastic evidence-based birth article that I'll link in the show notes mm -hmm. uh, about this specifically. And so it goes into details about how the trial was carried out. And they have lots of different articles about prospective versus retrospective uh, studies and all of that. But all of this to say, what they did is they took they screened 50,000 people to take part in this prospective study, but only 6,106 people agreed to be in the trial. So you're looking at a number of 6,000. And because it was prospective and because of ethics, people had to agree to be in the trial. And that's also going to change your numbers a little bit. Okay. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. So you have 6,000 people. And what they did is they took half of them and they assigned them to have an automatic induction at 39 weeks. And then the other half were given what's called expectant management. And so those people, they continue to go to appointments. And if anything comes up, then they're immediately given an induction or a cesarean or whatever treatment they need. But mm -hmm. other mm -hmm. than that, they're, they wait until they go into spontaneous labor. So what happened is with these 6,000 people that were in these really quality hospitals in America, 
they found that there actually was a slightly lowered cesarean rate in the people who had the induction at 39 weeks. Mm -hmm. So what happened is then all these hospitals around the world, all these doctors around the world went, hey, we really like inductions because we can, okay, I'm a little bit (laughs) giving my own (laughs) personality into this, my own take, but hospitals like inductions. They like to be able to schedule things out and plan things. They can be in charge. Yeah, they can control it a little bit more. So anyways, whether they said that or not, maybe they're just really (laughs) looking at the numbers, but they looked at this and they said, okay, so now we can recommend or offer inductions automatically for any reason, just the client wants to have one at 39 weeks and it will in theory even lower the chance of a cesarean Mm -hmm. yeah however there's a couple of problems with those numbers and the evidence-based birth article goes into that a little bit uh because we can't like i said already just to be in the study you have to volunteer to be in it and so that's going to shift the numbers a little bit already Right, because if you're the type of person who's mm-hmm. going to say, I want to be in this trial, it, those people make different decisions and also, yes. you know, than someone who chooses not to. Yes. And, you know, for example, and I could be wrong, this is just me guessing, but my guess is that people who are choosing to have doula support are not going to choose to be in a study that dictates Mm. when the induction takes place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's an assumption that I'm making. Of course, we as doulas do attend inductions all the time because inductions are, in some cases, medically life-saving tools, right? There's We're not against Mm -hmm. induction. So please don't get me wrong in me talking about this. I am 100%. I've had an induction myself. I'm 100% for medically necessary induction. So don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying like, I think that if you were to take a group of people, the people who want a natural birth or don't want to be told to have an induction just because of a study are not going to be the same people won't be in it. So anyways, so that's one problem. And then the other thing is that they had specific parameters about how they did the inductions. Okay, so Mm -hmm. in other words, the ratio of nurses to patients, the ratio of doctors to patients, also how often they moved the patient around and all of these different things. Okay, so if we just take any hospital in the world, they're not going to have those same practices. I can really tell that these are really quality hospitals because the cesarean rates they found were 19% for the people who had the induction at 39 weeks versus 22% for those who had expectant management. So Mm -hmm. those cesarean rates are very, very low. If you look at just your average hospital, your cesarean rate is actually much higher. And just for kicks, I went and looked at our survey. So in 2022, having a baby in China did a survey where we had mm-hmm. 217 people chose to take part in the in the survey. And again, these are not scientific numbers because we don't know who volunteered to be in it or who didn't. You know, we don't know anything about yeah. these people, but 217 people did voluntarily take our survey. And for those who had an induction, there was a 30% cesarean rate. 
Okay. And for those who had mm-hmm. a spontaneous labor, they had only a 13% cesarean rate. So there was a much lower cesarean rate for those who went into spontaneous labor. Now you can't just compare those numbers back to back because there's a lot of people who maybe were waiting for labor and then had to have an induction. You know, I don't, and we don't know at what yeah. point mm-hmm. were they going into spontaneous labor at 41 weeks or 40 weeks. I don't, we don't have those numbers, but I thought that that was interesting that there was a huge difference just in these raw numbers that we were given through this survey. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to understand what your hospital's induction policies are and how you're going to be mm-hmm. treated through the induction, Yeah, like how you're going to be cared for. And unfortunately, we can't compare, you know, apples to oranges. All I have to say, it was a really interesting trial. Uh, and there's a really great article by Evidence-Based Birth that also talks about other ways that you could lower your chance of cesarean if that's something you're really concerned about. But my biggest concern about this kind of idea of automatically having an induction between 39 and 40 weeks is that it doesn't leave room. It doesn't take into consideration the mom's experience, right? Mm -hmm. A spontaneous labor and an induced labor are completely different things. And I can speak for, from like my own experience. And also as a doula, I've attended, I've actually attended some really great inductions too. So like I said, I'm, I'm not against inductions, but they are a much harder in general, a much harder experience Mm -hmm. on the mom because mom's body is not spontaneously going into labor Either she or the baby probably isn't quite ready for labor. So we're trying to kickstart something that's not happening naturally, and that can be kind of hard to do. And there's different methods. We should have a podcast episode on what an Mm -hmm. induction looks like because that's something I like to talk about and I think is really important. But just know that if you are going in for an induction, whether it's just because you want to at 39 weeks or 40 weeks and that's what your doctor wants you to do, or whether it's because it's medically necessary, please do seek out support because it is really a very physically hard and emotionally hard and mentally hard experience uh, and something to not take lightly. So all of that being said, I told Jacqueline before we started recording that that was going to be my short part and I wanted to spend more time (laughs) on, on talking about how to wait for labor. (laughs) Okay. So I do want to talk a little bit about just keeping yourself mentally fit. I don't know if that's the right term, like not exhausted mentally as you wait for labor. So how can you be mentally prepared to, for those last days as it can be so grueling to wait? When is this going to happen? Yeah. And you can get very mentally fatigued. Yeah. I think that we put a lot of talk or conversation into preventing physical exhaustion, you know, as we wait for labor, but we don't talk a lot about preventing mental exhaustion. And to be honest, as a doula, I actually see people wear out mentally before I see them wear out physically. Mm. So there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about, maybe some pitfalls that I often see. And then in addition, some things that you can do in order to keep yourself from wearing out mentally. And physically. Yeah. So the first thing that I really want to encourage people to do, and I talked about this at the beginning, and I'm going to say it again because it's so Mm. important, is that it's really important to remember that physiologically, only 50% of people will go into spontaneous labor before 40 weeks and five days. 
Okay. So if you're 39 weeks and you're thinking it could be any moment, it could be any moment. Statistically, that's unlikely. <laughs> and so if you're waiting every single day, yeah, that it could happen at any point, it could be, you know, it could happen. So have your hospital bag packed and have your procedures, you know, your plans, how you're going to notify your partner, if they're going to be involved, how you're going to notify your work, whatever it might be, like know what those things are so that you don't have to be thinking about those things, but also don't be thinking all day, every day. Is this it? Is this it? Could this be the day? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things that I see people do often is to start the maternity leave quite early because the idea is that, you know, you get off and you get ready for baby. And while that makes sense and is one way that you can do it, sometimes when we go on maternity leave, it's like, okay, now I'm ready for the baby to be born. And so if we're doing that, you know, let's say 36 weeks, <laughs> likely it's now going to be at least a month before you're having the baby. And so, Actually, I generally encourage people to keep working as long as they are physically able to, you know, don't don't wear yourself out. But Mm -hmm. if you can keep working, if you're in a job that you enjoy and gets your mind off of the pregnancy and all of that, then it's actually mentally maybe a little bit better to delay going on maternity leave. And then you also have, you know, more time on the other side if you're planning on going back to work that extends your maternity leave. Yeah. Definitely in the end, you can get like super large and, you know, there can be other, you know, like extra back aches and, mm-hmm. um, you know, other things, you know, swelling and stuff. So I, I, I definitely can see, you know, the benefit of, oh, you know, I just, it's hard. Um, but yeah, to keep yourself busy is, is great to keep working if you can. Yeah. That's a great way to you know, keep your mind off of just waiting for the baby to come. Mm -hmm. And if you are having physical things that you're struggling with, then you can definitely seek relief for those things. And so a couple of different ways to do that would be signing up for some pregnancy yoga classes or doing swimming. Swimming is really great for the body. Of course, any exercise you do want to confirm with a medical professional that you are fit to do that. Um, spending time in meditation. I remember actually I had, it's funny because I didn't finish it, but somebody, I think Jacqueline, I think you actually gave me, I forgot it was you. You gave me the yarn and a pattern. Do you remember this? Oh. You gave me the yarn and a pattern for a baby blanket. And I think you were going to do it and you didn't do it. And so you gave it to me and I would actually come home from work and I would sit on the couch and I would crochet. I, was te- I taught myself how to, I mean, I already knew the basics of crocheting, but I taught myself how to yeah. follow a pattern and how to crochet. And I would come home and I'd sit there and I would pray and I would um, just kind of meditate and think about the baby that was to come while crocheting this blanket. And I say it's funny because I didn't mm-hmm. actually finish it while I had her, like while I was pregnant with her. I don't even think I have finished it while I was pregnant with my second. <laughs> I think I finished it after he was born and then there was a period of time that I we had a um a foster child, a baby that we were taking care of and so mm. I used it with her and yeah. then I mostly used it with my third son. So it's kind of fun because it's mm. I have such fond memories of sitting and meditating and praying as I was crocheting this blanket for my first baby, but then I actually used it more for the other babies. So 
picking up a, a craft or something to focus your, you know, something creative that you can relax with uh, while preparing for the baby mm-hmm. could be really helpful. And if you can find a pregnancy masseuse, that's a whole nother topic about massage and mm-hmm. chiropractic and everything in China that <laughs> we don't have time to go into. But if you can find somebody, that would be really great for just kind of relieving some of these pregnancy ailments. But definitely don't stop work and then only think about when is this baby going to come. Yeah. It's like a watch pot never boils. Yes, exactly. One of the things that I tell every single one of my clients, I think, that's waiting to have the baby is to actually create a calendar. And I think a lot of doulas suggest this. So create a calendar and put something kind of special on each day. So something that you wouldn't necessarily Mm. do normally. So it might be like on Monday, I'm going to go to a coffee shop. And if you drink coffee, drink coffee, otherwise, you know, a tea or a hot chocolate and put my feet up and read a book for two hours or something. And If I don't have the baby by Tuesday, then I'm going to go to a movie with my partner or by myself. And if I don't have the baby by Wednesday, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to go to that donut shop that I never go to and have a donut if if your diet can allow, (laughs) of course. And so making a schedule and something that you can look forward to each day. So it's a little bit of like, oh, well, I didn't have the baby today, but that means that I can do this other thing. But my favorite thing that one of, actually it was Andrea that we interviewed a couple weeks ago, she recommended for one of my clients a couple years ago is to actually go and stay in a hotel and a nice hotel if you can mm-hmm. afford it. Mm-hmm. So whatever hotel you can afford that's nearby the hospital. So take your hospital bag mm-hmm. with you, right? And then <laughs> if you have, if your partner's in the picture, you know, go to the hotel together and spend mm-hmm. the weekend enjoying the hotel and hopefully it has like a swimming pool where you could go swimming because swimming's really great as we mentioned and again it gives you something to look forward a nice to bath a nice bath yes hotel breakfast yes so again it's like this ultimate and put that around your due date like don't put that too early don't put that at 39 weeks and then be like okay check done now i can have the baby <laughs> like put this at almost like an unrealistic point <laughs> right that it's like okay i'm i really want to have the baby before this point but if i don't then i get to have this little baby vacation um, baby moon with my partner before i go into labor and of course you know finances play into this and i don't want to downplay that but i think that it can be kind of this middle ground of like being close to the hospital still if possible so if something were to happen it's convenient to go but then also There's so many hormones that are tied up into waiting for labor and labor itself that if your body is full of tension and anxiety and cortisol and all of that, it's going to be harder for your body to go into labor. Mm -hmm. So if you can go to some place where you're going to really relax and swim and all of that, you might even have a higher chance of maybe putting yourself into labor or (laughs) relaxing enough for your body to go into labor. Yeah. Yeah. Can you think back to anything, Jacqueline, that you did while you were waiting to have your babies? Well, two of my babies, I had family, like my mom and my sister, you know, two different births, come and visit me. And so that actually was nice because then um, it focused on, I mean, there is a little bit like they've come to 
for the baby, right? But mm-hmm. also, like, I wanted to show them around. So, yes. like, we, I would plan, like, a little outing, you know, every day, you know, like, oh, let, I want to show you, you know, this, this place over here. And, oh, I want to take you to this restaurant or, you know, like, oh, let's walk to this park and, and different things like that. So I think that really, that helped. Also, having more babies, <laughs> you're, you're kind of like tied up with the other babies that That's you're true. not quite as, I mean, there still is because you're like, okay, let's move on to the next stage. But, you know, it's easy to fill your time up with doing stuff for the, the older child or children. Yeah, it's true. I do remember with my third, my first and second, we're so excited that the baby was going to be born, that every day I'd go pick them up at the school bus. And my my second child, my first son, would say, oh, the baby still didn't come out yet. <laughs> and I remember walking home from the bus with him one time, one of the days, and he's like, I don't understand. He was four and a half at the time. He's like, I don't understand. Why can't you just push really hard and just make the baby come out? I'm like, it's not exactly like that. <laughs> With with my oldest, we had a plan for a friend to to take her, and so like as a treat, we bought um, macaroni and cheese, a box from America. <laughs> this is a special <laughs> treat, and, and so I just I remember like getting her ready, like we're gonna it's time to go to the hospital. You're gonna go to our the friend's house, and she's like, yes, and I get to have macaroni and cheese. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Helping older children to prepare for next baby is a whole nother episode that we could do. But on that note if, of like when you were talking about going out with your mom and then your sister, the other birth every day, that also makes me remember like it's important to be staying physically active. We talked about being mentally active, but it's really important to stay mm-hmm. physically active as well. So doing like if you can manage it a half an hour or an hour of walking every single day and the reason that this is is because when we walk our pelvis is rocking back and forth right so if mm. you can imagine putting your hands on your hip as you walk the, pel- the you know the pelvic outlet the area that the baby needs to come out is stretching and moving back and forth back and forth and then baby's head mm-hmm. hopefully is sitting down in there and so as it wiggles back and forth baby can kind of wiggle his head. We need to do like, <laughs> we need to do video podcasts at some point because I'm like acting this out for yeah. Jacqueline here and nobody can see it. <laughs> but, you know, baby's head is also rocking rocking back and forth in the pelvis. And so that can help baby to find the optimal position that they're then ready to be born. And so that's really important. Uh, like we said, swimming is can be really good for comfort because it takes the weight off of your body. But I, I never had a swimming mm-hmm. pool available. Like everybody talks about mm-hmm. swimming yeah. in pregnancy, but it was very rare that I had that as an option. And then sitting on the floor, crisscross applesauce to really open the pelvis, uh, sleeping with either a peanut ball or a couple of pillows between your legs. So you can look up some mm-hmm. pictures online So when you sleep, your body relaxes, right? So your pelvis is relaxing as well. And if Mm -hmm. we can have your legs open, so you have a, you know, big, ideally like two big solid pillows in between your knees, then as you relax, then your pelvis can open even more, which could help start labor or help baby to get into a position to trigger labor. 
And then of course, eating healthy. You know, we don't want to get down to the end. Sometimes I see people they are like, okay, I'm on maternity leave and they quit work and they take naps and <laughs> they, they eat a lot of stuff that maybe they shouldn't eat because they're feeling stressed or anxious. So yeah. I don't have like a really strict diet that I recommend to my clients, but I do recommend that people be eating healthy. Mm-hmm. There actually is evidence on eating dates. So it's four to six dates every single day. And they're like the dried dates, the big red mm-hmm. jujubes. Now, the actual like Chinese dates or the Mediterranean dates? You know, I've heard both. I've heard that it really doesn't matter which dates. And then I've heard that the Mediterranean dates are better. I don't know how much of it is like which ones have had the studies done. And if there really is a difference between them, yeah. I'm not sure. I think it doesn't hurt if your diet allows for it. It doesn't hurt to be eating either uh, if you... Yeah, have one. But yeah, so eating four to six every single day leading up to labor actually does show physical advantages in the state of the cervix. So it's a Hmm. little bit softer, a little bit stretchier uh, and generally leads to a slightly shorter labor. So that's one that has a little bit of medical standing behind it as far as something that you can eat. Hmm. Yeah. So again, just to kind of to recap Keeping your mind busy and preventing mental exhaustion is really important. Mm-hmm. Having a realistic expectation on when people normally, you know, statistically would go into birth. So we're not yeah. automatically thinking that we're overdue at 39 or 39 and a half or even 40 weeks. Yeah. And then staying physically active and eating healthy as you wait for labor. So, yeah. Anything else, Jacqueline? Yeah. And your best tip is, you know, planning activities. Yes. Hotel stay. Yes. (laughs) I just feel like you can't go wrong with a hotel stay, but that's just me. I really like hotels and my husband doesn't. So, (laughs) I mean, he doesn't mind them, but I'm, I usually can't convince him that it's worth the money. (sighs) Yeah. I personally don't sleep well the first night. Mm Mm-hmm. But usually the second night is is better. But it can be fun and pampering and so yeah. whatever. It doesn't have to be hotel stay. Something that, you know, you really enjoy, like you said. So Yeah. Was there anything that you did to keep yourself mentally sharp, not anxious for, for the <laughs> Waiting for delivery. I think definitely having conversations with my husband. Like I am a verbal processor. And so it was important for me to be surrounded by people that I could mentally process things with. And that wouldn't just give me like trite answers or trite responses. Mm -hmm. So that was really important. We were really blessed with our last birth, even though it wasn't my ideal birth situation. We did end up having to be induced, but... We were in America and we were living with my in-laws. And so they would actually watch the kids while we went to the doctor's appointments. And because I was high risk, I had to travel an hour into the city and go to the specialty hospital. And there was always this horrible traffic. And so it'd be an hour there and then like an hour drive. And then we'd be there for a couple hours and then it would be lunchtime. And so we would get lunch together and then an hour, hour and a half drive home. And my in-laws were so great to watch the kids, but it ended up kind of being a little mini date every single week. So that was kind of fun. Hmm. Yeah. I redecorated my bedroom waiting for one of my kids. Oh, was that in the one in America? Yes. 
I remember that. I remember getting pictures. Actually, it was it was lovely, actually. It really I, was. I enjoyed it. I just made it. And then I actually gave birth in that room. And I just, it was just so beautiful. And <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you are really good at creating really beautiful spaces. Like, I love going to your house and staying mm. there because it just, it always feels like a place I can really relax. I am... I am much more of the clutter type, <laughs> clutter everywhere. And I hate that about me. Like I would love to create these beautiful spaces. I just spent all this time cleaning up my side of the bedroom and I just like, then I go to go to bed, right? And I'm tired. And so I just like take out my bobby pins and drop my jewelry and stick the papers that are in my pocket on my side table. And the next thing I know, it's all cluttered again. <laughs> happens yeah yeah I need you to come down and help me do my house you you've done a lovely job your house is thanks well thanks so much Jacqueline for chatting with me about this tonight and uh yeah thanks for sharing your thoughts and again if you want to talk with either of us more you can find us on havingababyinchina.com or either of our names at havingababyinchina.com those are our emails And we look forward to connecting with you more. Thanks, Jacqueline. Until next time. Until next time. Bye. Bye. I don't know that it's relative to this topic. I mean, maybe, but... This is totally not on topic. Mm -hmm.